morning, and thank you for tuning in and listening to this week's Message of Hope on KBUR News Radio, 99.3 FM and 1490 AM from First Christian Church of Burlington, Iowa. We hope that this week's message helps you grow in your faith and share God's love. This week, our associate pastor, Will Ryan, continues our new Blueprint sermon series, sketching out an unexpected life with scripture from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 20, titled God Responds. Stay tuned after the message to learn more about First Christian Church of Burlington. In the midst of worship today, we offer our hearts and minds over to God now in prayer. So let us pray together. O God of grace, you have given us minds to know you, hearts to love you, and voices to sing your praise. We sense your presence all around us, in the beauty of this new day, in the warm fellowship and welcome that we receive here in the church, in the presence of the risen Christ who meets us here, calls us by name, calls us worthy and good, and invites us to follow. We have been given minds to know you, hearts to love you, and voices to sing your praise. As we come to worship this morning, O God, we pray that your spirit will be our strength, your word will be our guide, your love our comfort, and your promises our hope. We come to you knowing that there is so much around us that tears at us and causes us to tremble. So much bad news around the world that dominates the news cycle. Yet you keep us ever mindful of your presence and the hope you have given us in your son, Jesus Christ. Shape his love inside of our hearts, that we might be open to your word and love. Guide us, we pray, as your church family together, in our mission to spread your good news. Keep us focused on the mission and ministry to which you have called us and led us forward. Help us always to be a place that is growing in faith and sharing your love, so that we might make our little corner of the world here in Burlington, Iowa, more like the creation you have called us to be. And here today, we especially give you thanks for our brother in Christ, the Reverend Will Ryan, for his faith and ministry with us in these past three years. As his family has been called to another town and church, our hearts are filled with thanksgiving and love. For in his wit and humor, his leading and guiding, we have been warmed by the spirit of Christ's love. We have been shaped by the presence of God's love living through him, and we are grateful. And so with great sadness and joy, we give you thanks for having shared life together in these last days. We pray for blessings and for love, and we look forward to celebrating his ministry with us and continuing the good work that you have started through him after he has gone. Hear our prayers, O God, for those who need your tender touch of healing in their lives today, those that we name before you in the quiet places of our heart, those that are only known to you in the depths of our being. Be with those who need your love and grace, that they may know that you are God of faith and love, and that your presence is always there. Fill us with your spirits that we may celebrate your glory and truly worship you. For we offer our lives and this prayer to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to to pray together by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We are continuing with our Blueprints sermon series today, all about finding God in the unexpected places of life. And so we hear the reading today from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verses 1 to 20. May the Spirit of God be upon us as we hear God's word read in the midst of worship today. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not follow in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to them, You are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel and they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will anoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and to some to plow the ground and reap the harvest and make implements of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and for your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the very best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we are determined to have a king over us so that we may also be like the other nations and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like I said, I'm not leaving yet, so you have to deal with me over the next six weeks. It will be sad, and they will be painful, but I am glad to have been in your life, and you be a part of my life, at this beginning part of my ministry. So will you pray with me? 
O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We all have stories of regret buried deep in our history. Sometimes they come out when we get together with friends, reminiscing about old times, and then you remember that not everything is good. They rise to the surface late at night when you're lying in bed, and a memory just bubbles up to the surface and you can't sleep for the rest of the night. Then there are those times you see your own mistakes playing out once again by your teenagers. And you're powerless because a teenager wants to listen to their parents' advice. I have no experience in this at all. (laughs) I kind of view the Israelite leaders in today's scripture like a stereotypical petulant teenager. Not the good ones that are here at First Christian Church, but those stereotypical ones. The ones who know what they're supposed to do, but end up doing the opposite anyway. It's a story of failure. In the history leading up to the rise of the prophet Samuel, where we heard his call last week. Dave talked two weeks ago about how the call of Isaiah is used a lot in ordinations. Well, in my ordination, we use the call of Samuel called from a boy. But we hear about the rise of the prophet Samuel. And the story that led to his rising up is a story of cycles, again and again and again, time repeating itself. They didn't learn their history, and so they were doomed to repeat it. After being rescued out of Egypt, after wandering in the desert for a while, and after the Israelites firmly established themselves in the homeland, the Israelite people continued to do the same thing over and over and over again. And so here's the cycle. Let's start with the high of the cycle. Someone strong would lead the people for a while. They were called a judge. And the people would be on the straight and narrow when the judge was around. They would follow God's law and do all the things they were supposed to do and none of the things they weren't supposed to do. But then, as happens to people, the judge would die. And then the Israelites would become a bit more lax with the rules. They would start doing things that they thought were the right way. And because there was no strong leader, rival nations would swoop in and subjugate the people, putting them down under their boot. And so the people would cry out. They would remember that they have a God who promised to be with them. They would cry out and say, God, save us. And God would hear them. And God would say, okay. And so God would send another judge. And that judge would free the people from the nation and would lead a while. And then the cycle would repeat itself. The judge would die, the people would lapse, the rival nation would come in, and on and on and on it goes where it stops. Well, we know it stops with Samuel. Samuel is the last person in this line. He is the last judge. Though he did try and set it up so that it wouldn't be 
the last judge. You heard it in the scripture. He tried to set his sons up for success. Maybe he learned this from his mentor, Eli, the one who helped him hear the voice of God when he was a boy. But Samuel, fallible just like the rest of us, didn't learn from Eli too much. Because if he had, he would have known sons don't always live up to what you hope they would. Samuel's certainly didn't. And so by the time Samuel gets on in age, the tribal elders of Israel start looking around and thinking about who is going to lead them, who is going to save them when the cycle repeats itself. Though time and time again, God has made good on the old promise of always being with them through thick and thin, it seems the elders forget just who they are supposed to have lead them, who's supposed to be their king. And so with the short-term case of amnesia, they peer over the fence and see a startlingly green pasture over where the rivals live. They look back at what they have instead of seeing what they always saw before as perfect, as just as it should be, they now see an ugly, cracked, and dry desert. Maybe a deep, dark valley. Who wants an ugly desert when the neighbors have a green pasture? And who hasn't looked around and seen what everyone else has or what everyone else is doing and felt a pang of jealousy, a longing deep in your gut? And it doesn't matter how much you tell yourself that you shouldn't want that. No, that you don't want that. How much you know it's against the way you were raised. The want is still there, gnawing at you from the inside out. I'm sure it was gnawing at the inside of those tribal elders. Maybe they were sick and tired of the cycle they found themselves in, not realizing their own culpability and perpetuating it. Maybe they wanted security. Maybe they wanted ambition to rise above the other nations. Or maybe it was fear overtaking them. Fear of the pressure building from the outside in. Building just on the other side of the fence. Of course, we think of this as a symptom of adolescence. Where teenagers give in to the pressure of their peers. Peer pressure. I can remember the incessant lectures pouring out of the mouths of my parents, teachers, coaches, youth ministers. Don't do, insert garden variety and moral behavior here, just because the other kids are doing it. Stop me if you've heard this before, but you wouldn't jump off a bridge just because other people are doing it, right? No, they were actually telling that to my brother. I was perfect. I was the younger brother and learned from his mistakes. They would never say that to me. I think the imploring reaches its peak, its apex with teenagers. And sometimes it works. But more often than not, I think it doesn't. And adults like to think... We move past this type of response, this rearranging our values and actions according to outside forces, or at least we portray that to the world. But current marketers have tapped into something. No longer are ads about how good a product is, but it is about 
the lifestyle. If you want a certain lifestyle, you need this product or service. If you want to be a good mom, you need this tutoring service. If you want to have all the ladies love you, you need these sunglasses. Because that's what's going to do it. If you want, you name it. I'm sure there's an ad for it. Now, it's not the marketing and the advertiser's fault. They're just treating us adults like we haven't really grown up. Like we're still teenagers, pressuring us with the idea we won't achieve the abundant life if we don't buy this one thing. They're simply playing the game better than in the past, tapping into our fears and our longings in order to get us to do something. They're pressuring us. They're treating us like the elders who sought out Samuel to tell them they want their king. And of course, Samuel is upset with this. For one, they're already discounting the rest of Of his tenure. He's getting older. He's not dead yet. He still has much to offer. And they're already casting him aside. Putting him in the old prophet's home. They want the new thing. The young thing. The hip thing. And rightly. Samuel is mad. But the Lord tells him. It wasn't about him. It's not about him. It's about God. And about the law. God's law. The law. That pernicious thing which we know to be good and true and holy. Those commandments that help us live a good life. That help us be in community together both within and without. That help us pattern our lives and have a life that's Maybe drawn on the inside of the lines. But that same thing always causes us to fail, the Apostle Paul says. We always come up short. The law reveals our shortcomings and convicts us in our guilt. For the Israelites, it's always been this way from the beginning. Because not before the ink was dry on the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. They were cobbling together all their gold to fashion their own gilded God in the form of a calf. Nothing has changed between now and then. It's the very thing that sets their cycle off. The people could not help themselves. Just like we cannot help ourselves. An easy example for me is when you swear off chocolate for Lent. This little L law, I will not eat chocolate during Lent. The one thing I want more than anything else when I say that is chocolate. I cannot help it. And then I used this example in Bible study a couple weeks ago. I told the people, what if I say to you, don't think about elephants. What's the one thing you're thinking about? Elephants. You're breaking the law. Of course, a harder Example is the new anti-opioid ad I saw this week, where a man becomes addicted, not because he wanted to, but because of the prescriptions. And he breaks his own hand with a hammer just to get more. 
He knows he shouldn't, but cannot help ourselves. The law causes it. But God does two things for these Israelites. Instead of burning the whole place down with righteous anger, God graciously gives in to the people's demands and has Samuel warn them anyway, even though it won't do any good. Give them their king and tell them what kings are like, God says to Samuel. And Samuel obliged the Lord's request. And so, though it wasn't in their best interest, though God knew it would get them into trouble, though I'm sure God, our Heavenly Father and Mother, wanted nothing more than what all parents want for their kids, for them to succeed, God still gave them exactly what they asked for, a king. God let the people feel the full brunt of their decision. For the king fulfilled all that Samuel predicted. The quick joy they feel from being like everyone else led to utter and complete sorrow later on. I was reading this week a story from Andrew Sullivan who wrote about such things. He wrote it in in the magazine Time and he wrote, She went out to get cigarettes. That's my favorite detail of the story told by Ashley Smith. It was not a noble calling. It was not even a noble errand. But the craving for nicotine at 2 o'clock in the morning apparently led Smith into the loaded gun of one Brian Nichols, a man who was wanted for raping one woman and murdering another and three men. According to Smith, Nichols forced her into her apartment, tied her up, put her in the bathtub, and told her, I'm not going to hurt you if you just do what I say. What would you do at that moment? Would you scream, panic, beg? At that point, something else intervened. Smith actually communicated with her captor. She says she saw him not as a monster, but as a human being. She talked with him. She told her story, how her husband had been stabbed in a dispute and had died in her arms. How then she developed a drug habit, had been caught for speeding and drunken driving, and been arrested for assault, though the charges were dropped. And because of all this, had ceded the custody of her young daughter to her aunt. She showed him her own wounds as a human being. And she saw in that man his own wounded soul. By her account, she talked to him, made him breakfast, told him her story, and listened. And as she revealed her openness to grace, so apparently did he. She said, he thought I was an angel sent from God, and that I was her sister, and he was my brother in Christ, and that he was lost, and God let him write to me. Maybe he was right. And we latch on to this story, not just because it's a riveting end to a harrowing manhunt. We find ourselves transfixed and uplifted by the sordid ordinariness of it all. He was an alleged rapist and murderer. 
She was tied up in a bathtub, clinging to the wreckage of a life that was barely afloat. One was a monster, the other a woman unable to care for her five-year-old child, looking for cigarettes in the dark. And out of that, out of all that, came something beautiful. He saw his purpose to serve God in prison, to turn his life around, even as it may have been saturated in the blood and pain of others. And she saw hers to make that happen. These people weren't saints, at least how we think of them. But grace arrives unannounced in lives that least expect or deserve it. The message of the gospel is that God works with the crooked timber of human failure. By all accounts, the people of our scripture today failed. They wanted what they did not have and gave a horrible reason for wanting it. But God let them fail. God gave them what they wanted because God can work with failure. God responds to failures. Indeed, it's exactly who God in Christ died for on the cross. Failures like you and failures like me. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message of hope from First Christian Church Disciples of Christ here in Burlington, Iowa. We are located at 1221 Park Avenue on the south side of town in between the airport and Dankwart Park. If you're looking for a church home or looking to find a relationship with Jesus Christ for the first time, we hope that you will join us for worship this Sunday morning. We have two services every week. Our traditional service is at 8.45 a.m. and features old-time favorite hymns and a wonderful anthem by our chancel choir. Our contemporary service is at 10.45 and features our amazing band and music that you hear from today's Christian radio. Both services offer a hope-filled and challenging message for today, activities for youth and children of all ages, and open communion for all who believe in Christ. There is no better way than to begin your week with worship, so I hope you will join us. You can find out more information by going to our website at www.burlingtondoc.org, and you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Burlington DOC. We hope you have a great week and share the love of God with someone today.